in uh, chapter 11 of Paul's letter to the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives us a, a brief uh, CV of his, uh, a, a summary of his life. He mentions his Jewish background, he mentions uh, quite a bit of his upbringing, uh, but he then goes on to mention all his struggles and all his tribulations and afflictions that he had experienced as a minister, as a servant of God. And in verse 25 and 26 of 2 Corinthians 11, he goes on to detail the dangers that he experienced in his missionary journeys, in his sea voyages. He tells the, the readers, the Corinthians and us, that he three times had run uh, or had been shipwrecked. Let me read to you the words he, he wrote to the Corinthians. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren. Besides these three shipwrecks that he was in, he, Paul experienced a list, at least one more which is the one that is recorded for us in Acts 27. Uh, the letter of, the second letter to the Corinthians was written years before this event that took place. So Paul had already experienced three shipwrecks, at least by now, and here he is about to experience his fourth one in his journey to Rome. Just to give you a brief uh, recap of, the, uh, of where we are, Paul has uh, finished his third missionary journey. He, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was brought before the governor, uh, 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 before the governors, um, and he has been arrested now by uh, by now two years almost, or around two years. Uh, he has appealed to Caesar. Festus couldn't uh, lay a charge to him. The governor Festus couldn't lay a charge to him. He appealed to Caesar, and now he is being taken from uh, Caesarea. Uh, which is in the, the Palestine area, um, or where uh, Israel is today. Uh, he's been taking, taken from there to Italy, to Rome. That's the, the, the context, or a brief uh, recap of where we are. He's under arrest, uh, and he's being taken to Rome to make his case before Caesar, before Nero in Rome. So the text we will consider today is perhaps one of the most, uh, uh, one of the most vivid and, uh, uh, pieces of descriptive narrative uh, in the whole of the, the Bible. It, it's breathtaking, uh, the, the, the events that are taking place here. And it narrates for us this perilous journey that, that Paul took to Rome. So today we'll consider it in three headings. Firstly, we'll consider the, the first stage of the journey from verse 1 uh, to verse 8, uh, and where Paul also, uh, uh, well, the first stage of the, the journey there. Secondly, as they set sail, secondly, we will consider the, Paul's uh, an warning about the storm, uh, and the, or warning and the storm that buffeted them. That's verse 9 to verse 20. And then thirdly, we'll consider 
Paul's uh, safety, Paul's uh, encouragement to, to his companions in verse 21 to verse 26. John Calvin, as we start uh, this, uh, this exposition part, let me say, uh, repeat to you the words of John Calvin, speaking of, about the main purpose of this text. He says that Luke sets down Paul's voyage by sea, most of all to this end, that we may know that he was brought to Rome wonderfully by the hand of God, and that the glory of God did many ways appear excellent in his doings and sayings, even in the very journey which did more establish his apostleship. The very fact that Paul is getting, going to Rome under the, the, the purposes of God and that this storm comes serves to magnify the hand of God in all of this. There is, in fact, no storm, no matter how terrible, that would prevent Paul from fulfilling his purpose, from fulfilling God's purpose to bear witness to Christ before Caesar. So the first stage of the journey, we read it in the first eight verses. And here again, it's one of those instances where perhaps it's helpful for us to keep an, a finger in, in, the, in the back of our Bibles in those maps that we have there. Although uh, usually the, the maps don't, uh, not all of them uh, detail for us the trip to Rome. But it's useful to, to have a sense of what's going on. So the, the journey begins in, in, uh, in, um, in Caesarea. They're, they're departing. Uh, Festus hands uh, Paul and other prisoners to Julius, a centurion in Rome. We do not know him exactly how much time has gone by since the events related in the previous chapter uh, to the events that we are now considering. But it, Festus seemed like a diligent kind of, seems to us as a, a diligent kind of, of ruler, so it must have not have been uh, too long after these events before King Agrippa took place that Paul was handed over to Julius uh, to be taken to Rome. We don't know how many prisoners there are, but we later, uh, in a, we'll look at it next week, we find that uh, Luke records for us that 276 persons were on board of the ship. Certainly, there were, alongside Paul, there were some, uh, a good number of other prisoners that were entrusted to Julius to be taken to, to Rome. And accompanying Paul in this journey is one called Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. We already heard from him uh, when uh, Paul was traveling to Jerusalem. Aristarchus was there. And we, Paul will later, as he writes one of his prison letters, he will say that Aristarchus is his prisoner or his companion in prison or in chains. Aristarchus is a brother in Christ. So Paul is comforted by having Aristarchus there with him, as well as Luke. Luke certainly is there with Paul. You, you, can, you notice that in the language, uh, for instance, in verse 7, uh, Luke speaks in the third person or uh, in the first person plural. We had sailed slowly many days. When, when it, or in verse one, when we should sail to Italy, Luke is there. At least three Christians on that boat. Paul has at least two companions there to comfort him, to fellowship with, to keep him company, to pray with, and for him. And that is a wonderful thing. 
So the day after they departed with Reed, they docked at Sidon. Sidon is just about 100 kilometers north from Caesarea. It's a port city located just north of Caesarea. And here we read that Julius was very kind to Paul, and he kind of gave him the liberty to, to go and visit some of the, the brethren in that city to be taken care of by them. Uh, it, is, uh, it is not unlikely that Festus, uh, the governor, had told Julius the centurion that, that actually Paul was, was a, a man who was innocent or the, that he, he was uh, probably innocent of these accusations. And again, Paul had already enjoyed a degree of liberty, even uh, in chains, uh, as he was a prisoner in Caesarea. So he has certainly uh, garnered for himself a sort of uh, uh, a confidence or a, a, um, a sense of the, his... His, the people who are imprisoning him know that he is a, someone who is trustworthy, that he won't simply run away. Continuing the journey, they, they get out from, from, uh, from, uh, from the, the port city where they are in Sidon, and they make their way through, uh, we read there, Cilicia and Pamphylia to the north, and to the south they have the, 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 the island of Cyprus, they make their way through there, and they arrive at Myra. And at Myra, uh, the Julius transfers the prisoners from the ship that they were in, the, the Andromithium ship, to a, an Alexandrian ship that is sailing to Italy. And they purposed to go west. But because there was no wind at this time to sail them on to, in a, to Italy, they had to do the, the trip uh, south in a roundabout way. So from there, they go from in the Alexandrian ship, and they very slowly uh, pass through the port of Cnidus, still in the region of Lycia. But because the headwind, it would not continue west to Italy, they head south, passing Crete, round the Cape of Salmona, and with, very, with a lot of difficulty, they arrive at this port city called Fair Havens, near the city of Lacea. So this is what's going on. It, this is probably mid-September by now. It's the, 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 the winter conditions are, are starting to, to, uh, to pick up. Uh, the boats in, the, in those days, they were not sea, uh, uh, high seas faring kind of boats. They, they had one mast. They were, the, the technology just wasn't there. You, you travel when, you, when the weather allows you to, and, uh, and, and the weather wasn't allowing them to travel any further. So we, we then find the advice and the storm from verse 9 to verse uh, um, 20. Because of the bad weather... The ship had to remain moored there for several days. And we read there that uh, Luke tells us, because the fast was already over, Paul advised the man, I perceive that this voyage will end in a disaster and much loss. Paul, uh, Paul is taking a, a sailor kind of attitude here, and he's warning them that, the, that this is going to happen. The day of fasting in the year 57, which is the year that this is happening, uh, would, fall round, uh, would fall on the, uh, on the 5th of October. 
So we are already past the 5th of October. And since, uh, from September to early March, the records and the, and the, uh, that we have say that very few ships were able to traverse the Mediterranean. From, from September to March, every year, ships would moor and dock, and they would wait out the winter. I don't know if it was greed or what it was, or what, well, we have a few indications of what it might have been the, the pressure to, to move on. But Paul says to them, look, this is very foolish of you. This is going to end up badly. And you might say, what makes Paul so qualified? He's a, a Jewish theologian. Uh, he is a Christian uh, theologian now. He's, he's, just a, he's not a sailor. Well, someone with much more time than I have Piece together all the travels that we have record of Paul in the sea uh, and they came to the conclusion that actually Paul was a very experienced uh, not sailor but a very experienced seafarer uh, he knew quite a bit well he had been involved by now in three uh, shipwrecks he, he certainly doesn't want to be in the fourth and uh, but someone that had the time uh, he calculated that probably around 3,000 uh, miles that Paul had already traveled uh, over the seas. So he is not cert he's certainly not someone who is a, a, a green and, and inexperienced in matters of, uh, of sea travel. But just so happens, and we can sympathize with Julius, the centurion, he much rather hear the advice of the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the things spoken by Paul. And to add insult to injury, the majority of them advised them, were advising uh, the Julius, the centurion, to set sail from there also and to see if by any means they could reach Phoenix. And why? Because uh, fair, uh, the, the, the port of Fair Havens was a port that was not really conducive of having all these people there. It was not a, a port, uh, or uh, a port that was very good for uh, to winter uh, there. It was comfort that they were after. And, and to be fair to them, if you look on the map, I don't I don't know if your maps will show you that, but if you look at at, at the the map at the island of Crete, you find there that Fair Havens is just next to Phoenix. It wouldn't have taken them too long. It would have been a, a uh, maybe a day's travel. And so they risked it. And so they risked it. And they, when the south wind blew softly, they thought, well, this is our chance. The south wind is blowing very softly. We, we actually have a, a wind blowing from the south up to the north. We can just traverse the coast and do this rotation and, and, and end up in Phoenix. Let's go. Let's get a move on. But putting to sea and sailing close by Crete, not long after we read in verse 14, a tempestuous wind arose called Eurocliden, Eurocliden, and so when the ship was caught on that wind, he could not head into the wind. We let uh, her drive. The Eurocliden was a north, uh, is a northwest, uh, northeast wind that comes and and is very strong in this particular uh, time of the year. 
in in uh, coastal cities and in uh, in uh, seafaring um, professions, you you find that people will name the winds. In Portugal, we, for instance, in in the coast, in the northern coast, we have a, a prevailing wind. There is a, a northern wind that buffets from north to south almost perfectly, and because the coast of Portugal is is very much north to south, uh, parallel to north to south. When that wind is buffeting very strongly, you're you're standing on the beach, and the and the the sand is is blowing on your face very very strongly. It's called a nortada, and it's it's not really pleasant. And these kind of prevailing winds happen all over the world, and in the Mediterranean, this one is known as the Eurocledon, uh, and it it pushes the the boats that want to come no the boat that of Paul that wants to go north that wants to go towards Phoenix, it's pushing the boat south, southwest, and it's, it's buffeting it it's quite strongly. And there's really nothing you can do by then. It's not like you have a, 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 an engine. It's not like you have the, the technology of the sails that later was developed that allowed you to, to zigzag your way through a storm uh, and actually make... Uh, progress against the wind so they allowed it to be dro driven they allowed the boat to be driven despite Paul's advice despite all that was said they now find themselves in this condition and, and again this is a part I'll, I'll just power through or rush through this part but here you find a, a very accurate description of all that took place uh, after they've managed to, 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 to get some shelter of an island called Clauda, they secure the skiff. The skiff was this boat that used to, in, in, in fair weather, used to be dragged uh, 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 in the back of the, boat, uh, of the big boat, a small boat uh, that used to be dragged in the back uh, to allow people to, to go to shore and come back. Or it could be used as a lifeboat. But you really don't want that boat in a tempest, in a storm, to be there. Because it will work as an anchor. As, the, as it rains and as, as it takes on water, it will, it will start acting like, a, like an anchor pulling you down. And you really, in the middle of a storm, you want a lifeboat. So they brought the skiff on board, they tied it, and then you hear that they tied the boat, fearing that, that, they, uh, that the boat would break in half. They start tying the boat, uh, framing it with ropes, hoping that the boat would survive. Again, this, uh, these are boats built with wooden planks nailed together and, and with some bitumen. A, a little bit of force, and they start tearing apart. And then we read that uh, when they, they start throwing things off the boat, because the boat is very heavy, a little bit of perhaps of, of, uh, of greed here. They really wanted to take as many people as possible and as much uh, uh, profits as possible from it. But they start throwing it away. Their life is much too precious uh, when, it, uh, when compared to the, to, the, to the prophets. But even then, nothing. They are still being buffeted. On the third day, verse 19, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. It's like everyone's on hand helping now. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest, that means a big tempest, was beating on them. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. 
when all was said and done, they lost all hope. But it's now. <laughs> but this is the beauty of it. That is, this is the beauty of this passage. It's all, when all hope is lost that God comes in. It's when all the resources, all the, 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 the desires for profit and all the desires for self-sustaining, uh, uh, self-reliance, it's all, when all of that is lost, when they're left with nothing, that God comes in and says, that's exactly what I want. No one else has an, any resource. No one else has any hope. No one else has anybody to look to for help. They are hopeless. Now I will announce my presence. It is beautiful. Because that is a, a, a metaphor of salvation. It is a metaphor of the experience of each believer who has come to trust the Lord for his salvation. It's only when we become hopeless... When, when all hope in everything else is lost, when neither sun nor stars appear for many days, that we throw ourselves in the, in the arms of the Savior. God comes in man's absolute hopelessness and he announces who he is. And he announces who he is by the, the apostle. After many days without food, and I think this is a reference, not so much, it can, some people see this as Paul was fasting. No, I think this is many days without food. No one was able to eat. The, the boat is being tossed to and fro and everyone is seasick. After many days without food, all the food has been thrown away. And Paul stood in the midst of them and said, man, you should have listened to me. I, I love this. <laughs> Paul is just a man, isn't he? He cannot help it. But just have a little moment of a, of a, I told you so. He's not being obnoxious about it. He's just stating the facts. I told you so. You should have listened to me. I love this. Uh, and I have sailed from Crete and incurred the disaster and loss. And now I heard you. Be of good heart. Take heart. For it will be no loss. There will be no loss of life among you, but only the, of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Seems like he's starting to preach the gospel. It seems like he's, he's saying, look, trust my, I trust this God. You trust my God. And he stood amongst, among us, among me, uh, or he stood, uh, whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid. Paul, you must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Isn't it wonderful? He say, trust my God. Trust my God that all will be well. We'll lose the ship, but we won't lose any lives. And he declares his full confidence in the, in, the, in the revelation of God, in the faithfulness of God. And implicitly, I would say, he's inviting the, the, the men in that ship that are hopeless to trust the same God that he trusts. Man, trust, my, trust this God that I trust. He controls not only, only the weather, but he controls everything else. We will not run aground 
or we will not lose any lives, but we will run aground on a certain island. And you might be wondering what happens next. That's for next week. But let me just quickly make some uses and applications of this passage. What lessons can we take from a, a text like this that is filled with geographical uh, insights, with a lot of nautical uh, terms? What kind of lessons does a text like this bring to us? Acts, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, the, the author of Acts, uh, of a, perhaps the the best modern commentary on the book of Acts, in my opinion, at least. Uh, he says that, uh, right at the beginning of that commentary, he says, human life has often been compared to a voyage across a stormy sea. It is not surprising, therefore, that many readers and expositors have found an allegory for the soul experience in Acts 27. And it is true. There is an allegory here of a human condition. We're all lost at sea. We're all uh, being tossed to and fro. We're all being buffeted around with no hope. There is certainly a, an element here. But there are other lessons before we, we come to consider that one. First of all, I, I would say let's, let's once again be convinced that the book of Acts is not just a, a, a story uh, put together a myth or a, 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 a put together by, by someone many centuries after this happened to, to prop up the Christian faith. Luke was, a, was a, a very careful historian. Even to this day, you, if you open, uh, um, and I didn't, but I, I take it on, on good authority that this happens. If you go and, and study uh, nautical history, history of ships, history of traveling the seas, if you go and speak to a historian uh, of this, uh, of uh, seafaring, they will turn to, to and say that the, the account provided by, by Luke in the book of Acts is one of the most detailed accounts of, the, of his age. And it's it, the terminology that is used concerning ships, concerning the sea routes, concerning the, the different ports and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the, the, the different dangers as the boat is being tossed southwest. Uh, they are afraid of running into the sands of, of Libya. Those sands are still there. They were concerned then and they were concerned now for many ships not to get too close to the coast of Libya. All of this, they will say... They will say those historians will say that this is a precise account of known historical information of that time. Again, proving that the, the Bible is true. But the text also illustrates the care of God for his people. I love it that, that Paul, after two years in prison, after, after being put to trial three, four different times now, and, and being sent... To, to, to Rome, this happens to him. I love it because Paul uh, just showcases for us what life is like. It, it's sorrows uh, and afflictions coming. But also, uh, the fact, what I love is that God is there to aid him and to comfort him in every single trial and affliction. In different ways, at different times. Uh, but God is always there to care for him, to alleviate their, the trials and the afflictions of Paul, just as he does for you and me, brother and sister. 
And we don't we cannot and we been we dare not to presume that we deserve that comfort or that we des, uh, that we uh, are due or or that we are uh, entitled to that comfort. Let's be honest, we are not entitled to the, any of that. It is all a work of God's grace in giving us that comfort in the midst of tribulation. In, in, we, de- we do not need that comfort, and yet God gives it to us freely. Because let's, we were talking about this on Friday with, with some pastors uh, in the fraternal. We are talking about depression and, and um, what is the, the, the cure for depression and all of that. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, the cure for depression, unless it's a clinical one, and there are, there are caveats with that, but if you're, if you're someone who feels melancholic and if, you, if, if trials and tribulations are, are really buffeting you and you feel like you're, you're really struggling, the cure for it is Christ. It's to be assured that whatever is happening, you have Christ and you have eternity and the glory, glory to come. There is an eternal reward to come and I but yet even in the present even now God sends his his uh, his his comfort to us through for Paul he was through an angel through friends through uh, um, Aristarchus and and uh, and uh, and Luke being there with him it was through all of these things, through uh, being allowed by Julius to to go and and be taken care of by the by the, the ch- by the church in Sidon. It, all of this is great, and all of this shows us the heart of our God. In all of this, we see the goodness of God to His own, to you and to me, as well. And how much gratitude should we owe the Lord for the, grace, for, for the way he graciously eases our tribulations. For, really give, for giving us real comfort in the midst of afflictions. For relieving our sufferings. How much should we be thankful to the Lord for that? So brethren, finally what we need to consider in this passage is how it encourages us to trust God, to trust his word, to trust his grace, to trust his faithfulness, even in the midst of storms of life. The danger was real. This was not some propped up danger. This, was, this wasn't some kind of, uh, of, uh, uh, of situation that is being built up by, by, by Luke. This was a real danger. It was a desperate and serious situation. But after days of facing the storm, after days of being tossed through to and fro, without really any hope of escaping, Paul is still filled up with hope. Paul is still rejoicing in the hope of glory. Paul is still there, uh, steadfast. And you ask why? Why is Paul uh, so steadfast? 
Why is it uh, that, he is, that he is able to say this to these men in the boat? It's not because he's some kind of, of a, a foolish optimist. It's not because he is, uh, he, he, he is some kind of, uh, of uh, uh, filled up with hu- merely human confidence that, that all the things will always be, be okay, that nothing is so bad as it seems. It's not some kind of stoical uh, endeavor uh, coming out of him. No, Paul is this confident because he knows the God whom he serves. He knows in whom he has believed and he is persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed to him until the end. He knows the God whom he serves. He knows the God to whom he belongs. Look at that language. The, the God to whom I belong. Wait. The God to whom I belong. Isn't that wonderful? And isn't that the distinction between the, the two different ways of life? Who do you belong to is the question. Do you belong to God? If you belong to God, you have no reason to to lose hope. What does it mean to belong to God? What does it mean to belong to God? Yes, we all, this world belongs to him. The hills and the the cattle on a thousand hills, everything belongs to to him because he is the creator. And we belong to him because he made us. But that's not the belonging that Paul is talking here. The belonging that Paul is talking here is belonging to him by a double purchase. Because he has purchased us with the blood of his son. And Paul is saying, I belong to him. I'm now his, his, uh, his property. I'm his by creation, yes. But I'm more his by redemption now. And he has told me, Paul says, he has told me that I will testify of him to Caesar in Rome. And he will lead me there. And the Lord has assured me that I will be there. And isn't it wonderful as well that, that, that it comes clearly across, implied in the text here, that he was praying for the people in that boat. Look at what the angel says to him. The angel says... Uh, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you. It's as if Paul has been praying. Paul, perhaps, and Aristarchus and Luke, they had been praying for, the, for, the, for those uh, sailors. And it, for any of Christians, any of us, that wouldn't be uh, completely unusual. If you found yourself in a situation like that, you would be praying that the Lord would save them, that the Lord would preserve them. Isn't it wonderful? This is a principle in scripture as well. That the presence of God's people works for the good of all of, of society. When we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in, in the evening service with, the, with the, the, the analogy of salt of the earth. But isn't, isn't, what we see, isn't that what we see here as well? That the fact that Paul is in that boat means that, that those people will be spared from, the, from, from, uh, from death. Physical, at least, for, for a season. This is a principle that is given in Scripture often. It's Abraham pleading with God. God, will you spare Sodom if, I find, if there are 50 righteous there? And God says, yes. So all of Sodom would be spared. All of that wickedness. But they would be spared for, that, for a season at least because of the righteous that were in their midst.
God often spares, Matthew Henry says, God often spares wicked people for the sake of the godly. If there had been ten righteous persons on Sodom, he would have been spared. The good people are hated and persecuted by the world as if they were not worthy to live in it. Yet really it is for their sakes that the world stands. Did you know that? That the presence of godly God's people in the midst of an ungodly community actually protects that community. It's there in, 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 in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it, you see it so often. In the book of Genesis, uh, what happens when Laban comes to Jacob? And Laban is, Jacob, don't go, stay. Because whenever you're here, it's like things go better. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's the idea. The fact that Jacob is there uh, brings protection and brings, uh, or brings uh, prosperity and brings good things. Book of Genesis, uh, Joseph. Joseph is there in prison. What happens to, 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 to Potiphar? Because Joseph is there in his presence. The presence of a godly man in the midst of that wicked uh, household or prison uh, brings blessing upon the whole. This is not prosperity gospel, by the way. This is just the, the reality that the presence of God's people works as salt in the earth. And God often spares a wicked generation because of the godly within it. So the question for us is, are you one of those who belongs to God? Or are you one that doesn't belong to God? Do you belong to God? Can you say with a, with, with a clear conscience and with full assurance this morning, I am God's? Not just by, by right of his creation, but by right of, of how I was purchased by the blood of his son on that cross on Calvary. Can you say that? Can you say that? Because that is the heart of the gospel. So often uh, Christ was presented with people who were, were coming to him. And, and, and at the heart of the challenge that Christ would often put to them was a, the, the, the question of self-surrender. Whom do you belong to? What is dear and, near and dear to your heart? Will you reject father and mother? If not, you're not worthy of me. Will you take up your cross? If not, you're not worthy of me. So often the question in Christ was framed in Christ's presentation of his kingdom to others in the sense of, are you willing to lay down your life? Self-surrender is at the heart of the gospel. It is the essence of Christianity. What is, what is, that, is it that moves you? Let me put you to you in the words of Paul. For none of us, speaking of Christians, none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the, for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or, or die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and rose and, and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. If these words have any meaning, if these words have any meaning to us, is it that the man who is living for himself, the man or the woman who lives for himself, who lives to please herself or himself, does not have a part, cannot lay claim to, the, to belong to God? No, if, if you live for self, 
you will die in that in the in living in that way and you will stand before God and give an account for all that you have done for all your life of sin and you stand condemned already but there is forgiveness in Christ all of those who self-surrender like the 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 who, who who became like the 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 sailors in this boat who lost all hope of profit all hope of being in control of the situation all hope of being saved all hope of being fed of being uh, uh, all those sailors who knew that they had no hope if you find yourself in that situation you trust the one who is able to, able to do all of this the, the one who is able to save your life. The one who is able to lead you to, to, into his presence. You come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And you turn to him. And you live for him. Not for self. And then you say, I belong to him. I'm no longer my own. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. And he purchased me. I'm no longer my own. I serve him. When neither stars nor sun appeared for many days, when they lost all hope, that's when God comes in and says, that is exactly what I want. Have you lost all hope? And for us, brothers and sisters, the encouragement is that we do belong to the Lord. We are his. And, though, and, and to be able to say that we are the Lord's is from that flows the greatest of comforts. Is it not a privilege? Is it a privilege small? Is, is it a small thing to say that you belong to God? Is it a small thing to say that you have peace with God, that your sins are forgiven? Whatever else is happening in your life, consider all that you have already. It's a small thing to know that he cares for you. That he has told you time and time again, cast your cares upon me. Humble yourself before me. Cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. It is not a small thing, is it? To understand that even when you go through storms of life like Paul did, through four shipwrecks at least by now, that all of these afflictions, all of these tribulations, all of the buffeting from uh, the whippings and the, and the beatings that he suffered, all of it in some strange and yet some cl so clear sense, they are tokens of God's love. They work patience within us that test and prove our faith that our goal might be refined by fire as the apostle Peter says so if we go through trials and temptations let us remember like Paul I'm the Lord's whether I live whether I die I'm his or like Jonah the Lord gives the Lord takes away blessed be the name of the Lord why is it that men can say things like this when, when they lose everything, when they're enduring the, the harshest of trials? Because they know they serve and they belong to a God 
who has prepared beforehand, before the creation of the universe, has declared and decreed all things that would come to pass, and that in, 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 in the end, as you look back on, upon your life you've lived, you're going to say, God was there in every single moment, in every single trial. I don't like, I, I don't like the, 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 the footsteps on the, on the sand kind of uh, uh, poem. But it, there is a truthfulness to it, that God is closer, even, uh, closer and closer in the tribulations that we go through. So brothers and sisters, let us not lose hope. Let us be our daily care. Let it, let it be our daily care to be waiting for him in the ways that he has commanded us in obedience to him. That when he appears, we also shall appear with him.